My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future. Responses to COVID-19. Well, welcome to the next in our Bridges to the Future podcast series. And today it's a bit of a first because we have two guests discussing their view of what needs to change after the pandemic. They're Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott, and I will ask them to introduce themselves and what it is that they particularly want us to be thinking about when it comes to change after the pandemic. Linda, you first. Hi, I'm Linda Grattan. I'm Professor of Management Practice at the London Business School and co-author with Andrew of our new book, The New Long Life, which is actually out today. So for me, the pandemic is a real opportunity to accelerate the trends, particularly in terms of how we work. Do we work from home? Do we work flexibly? But also in terms of families, what's happening to how roles are assigned within families? And can we expect after this fathers to step up more within families? Great. And Andrew? Yes, I'm a professor of economics at London Business School and co-author with Linda of The Hundred Year Life, our last book. So obviously COVID is this huge multidimensional shock. It's accelerating a number of trends. It's acting as a stress test. I think for me, the most revealing thing is we've shown that actually the economy is not the most important thing, but the health and well-being is. And that, I think, has to be the basis for how we think about things going forward particularly given the trends we talk about in the book about AI and longevity and how those two are going to transform our lives. And we have to think about them in a way that makes it work for us as individuals and society, first and foremost, rather than the economy. Great. Well, we've got a fascinating half an hour ahead of us. And although you've already, in a sense, preempted this question, I'm still going to ask it because it's the question we ask everybody on this podcast. So Linda Gratton and Andrew Scott, what do you think should and what do you think could change in the world after this pandemic? Let's start with you, Andrew. Well, clearly, a number of things are going to change as to how broad the impact of COVID is. And it's accelerating a number of features that have been lying in society before the crisis. And it's certainly accentuated inequalities and insecurities. But I think one of the things that's not discussed enough about this crisis is at the heart of it, it's about an ageing society. If you look at the way COVID affects people in terms of mortality, it exactly mimics all causes of death. It's like suddenly society is getting a big increase in ageing. And what we're trying to do is to keep older people healthy while also preserving an economy. And that's raising a whole bunch of issues. One about our society and what we consider to be old, but also how do we keep people healthy and keep an economy healthy? So focusing on that issue, I think, is crucial. So, Andrew, I think one of the conversations that's really not happened in the mainstream around this crisis is the weight and value that we put on 
the later years of people's lives because it's really only been a few outliers who've been willing to say things like, well, this just means that most of the people who are dying are people who would have died anyway in a year or two and it isn't as serious as it would be if it was affecting younger people. Now, people don't say stuff like that for very obvious reasons because it's offensive and it would be a kind of disaster to be caught saying that. But I wonder whether you think in some ways it's implicit in society's response, or certainly some part of society's response, that we're making some statements here about the value that we attach to people's lives in later years. Yeah, so actually, I'm going to try and put it slightly differently in that, you know, this is a terrible time, but I am mildly encouraged the way things are going. So this is the first pandemic ever to happen when the world's population has got more people aged over 65 than under five. And that has made our response very, very different. And I think what's so interesting is that although there are complaints about lockdown clearly, but in general, there's wide acceptance of the need to save lives, even at the cost of the worst economic recession for 300 years. So I would actually say we've shown how society values older people in a way that I wasn't sure would happen before. Now, one of the themes of our work is how we need to change the narrative around aging. Because if you're living longer, Everyone at every age has more time ahead of them. There's more remaining life. If you're young, there's a much greater chance of being old than there was, say, when the Spanish flu happened. And also we're aging differently. We focus a lot upon there being more old people. But a key thing is actually we're living longer and we're healthier for longer. Now, to change that narrative around age, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's got to happen in terms of conversation. And the whole discussion around lockdown, people over 70 aren't all ill. It's not just age, it's comorbidities. I think are beginning to tackle this. And I think also it's really interesting if you look at some of the characters who get out of press profile here. You know, sort of Colonel Tom Moore, at the same time we're talking about, you know, we've got to protect the over 65s, we're lauding his extraordinary achievements in his 100. Dame Vera Lynn, I think, is 105. So in a way, I think the diversity of ageing, the, the need for a new narrative, in some way is actually being revealed. And then, of course, you're seeing just how out of date our current institutions are, particularly things like care homes, which clearly just show we haven't got an institutional framework to support the longer lives we're currently living. So I'd be mildly positive. I think it's actually accelerating our need to tackle the problem, but also revealed that we do actually care about older people in a way that we previously haven't. I absolutely get that. And I think that for me, one of the most powerful statements that's been made during the crisis is President Macron arguing that we have seen the greatest show of social solidarity, arguably, that the world has ever seen in terms of people's willingness to give up their day-to-day lives and make economic sacrifices and take an economic risk to protect the more vulnerable members of our community. But Linda, I'm interested in your perspective on how this has shone a light on our views about older people. Yes, there is the compassion and solidarity that Andrew referred to, but there's also been the kind of almost the underlining of the notion of ageing as a disease in itself because of the greater susceptibility of older people to this disease. And as Andrew himself said, what it's told us about the fact that we lock up hundreds of thousands of old people out of sight, out of mind, and with the disaster in care homes, we have been forced to confront that behaviour. Thank you, Matthew. And I want to also expand that question a little bit and really just to look at what it is when we think about our age. Chronological age is sort of obvious, isn't it? It's the number of number of candles on your birthday cake. But actually, what's really clear is that age is malleable. We can change the way we age. And that's really important because one of the things that Andrew and I talked about 
in the 100-year life was that if you live to 100, we're going to be working into our 70s. And that's a pretty tough thing to be thinking, particularly at the moment in terms of a pandemic. But I think for me, what the pandemic has really brought to the fore is that relationship between work and home. Suddenly, we're finding ourselves out of the office in our homes, often schooling our kids. And many of the habits and traditions that really was part of how we managed the boundaries between walking from home, getting into work, getting from work, coming back to home. Those boundaries have disappeared. And in disappearing, they've shown us just exactly what work can be like, what home can be like. But also, it's helped us to think about in this long life that we have ahead of us, what are the opportunities for us to build a different narrative? In our new book, The New Long Life, we talk about possible selves. You know, the idea that at any point in time, you can change the trajectory of your life. And if you're going to live many years through a time of extraordinary technological change, then that exploring possible selves is absolutely crucial. But of course, what's fascinating about right now is that the possible self that we've all been confronted with is not something that we'd anticipated. I hadn't anticipated being in my home for months. I'm sure Matthew and Andrew, you hadn't either. And so we're beginning to realize that not just our age is malleable, but our whole life is malleable. And as we lose some of the habits, some good habits, but also lots of bad habits about the way that we worked, about the way we thought about our families, about the way we manage those boundaries, I think there's an opportunity for a new narrative to begin to emerge. And over the next couple of months, the next year, we'll be really looking at how is it that we're going to change the way we work? How is it that we're going to change our relationships within our family, and also the enormous role that community plays for all of us, which has rather been pushed aside in the scramble to work. I find this absolutely fascinating, this suggestion that one of the effects of the crisis has been to throw into the air a set of assumptions we have about the relationship between work and the rest of our lives. I've often thought in the work that I've done on quality of working lives, that there's something telling about this notion of work-life balance, because what it contains within it is some idea that life is the space for meaning for us. It's the space of affect. It's the part of our lives that's about what our life really is. And then work is essentially the stuff that we do in order to get money, in order that we can live our life. And therefore, when we talk about balance, implicit is it's a balance between the stuff that you want to do and that you really are, home, and the stuff that you have to do and that you're told to do, that is work. And as you've suggested, Linda, in many ways, some of these kind of assumptions have been thrown in the air. So first of all, there is simply the fact that many people have been working from home. Obviously, there's a class dimension to that. It's much more middle-class people, knowledge workers, people like us. But nevertheless, a lot of people have been working from home. And one of the consequences of that has been that you know, you've been talking to your boss online and, you know, her child has wandered into the room or her cat has leapt up onto the table. So some of the kind of lines that divide up the different parts of our lives have been kind of broken down. And many employers, and I'm an employer myself, have had to think much more deeply about the well-being of our staff as they work from home. And then another dimension of this has been the way in which the relationship between market value and social value has really been exposed in the sense that the key workers, the people we applaud on Thursday night, the people who deliver food and things to our home, these jobs which 
have traditionally been low paid and sometimes seen as low status or even low skilled. And their essential corporate bankers have not really been terribly significant in the last few weeks by contrast. So this all throws things in the air. And then you've got as a final element, you know, Dare Turner, who I interviewed last week for the RSA, you know, his most recent article is called Robots Don't Get Ill. And so there's the possibility that this virus will lead to the acceleration of automation. And that might eventually lead to something people have been predicting for many, many years, which is that in a sense, there isn't enough work to go around. So if all of this is turning the kaleidoscope in terms of how we think essentially about work and its role in our lives and our role in society, what opportunities does that create? Andrew, what do you think? A great set of questions. And that's you know, very much the heart of our book, The New Long Life. So the work-life balance, the essential worker aspect, the diminution of the market logic, and then automation, I think are great points to put to. What we say in the book is that humans are really smart, and we're smart enough to come up with great technologies. But where our smartness and our ingenuity is really needed is making that technology work for us as people. And you know what's interesting about the two themes, technology or automation and aging, is they sound really impersonal and they sound really sort of inevitable. But we know that demography is not destiny. We know that technology isn't destiny. We can shape these things in the way we want. And, you know, if machines are becoming more machine-like, haven't we got an opportunity to make humans more human-like? And your point about the work-life balance is a great example. You know, it goes back to the Industrial Revolution, how much of our work-life balance is structured by a place of work and a place of home, leisure and work, and that whole Marx sense about alienation of labor that comes from it. But if we've got a chance to be more human, how do we exploit these wonderful new developments to make sure that there isn't a work-life balance, but something more integrated? And one of the things we stress in the book is actually, if your career is getting longer because you're living longer, if technology is disrupting the labor market, so there's going to be more transitions, a lot of what you're going to call work is not going to be paid employment. And by that, I don't just mean you're working in the gig economy. You're going to have to be investing in a whole bunch of skills and relationships, particularly communal ones, if the workplace becomes less important. And if I go back to what I think this crisis has revealed, I said we've put saving lives ahead of crashing the economy. And every economist would tell you a little secret of economics, which is the things we value most as individuals don't exist in GDP. They exist outside of GDP. They are health purpose and relationships. So I think what we've got to do is start a narrative that prepares people individually for the changes to come, but also creates a social voice so that how we respond to technology and aging is not driven by governments. It's not driven by the corporate agenda, but it's very much about seizing the opportunities. And they are huge. We're living longer lives and we're healthier on average. We've got machines that can help us blend the family and purpose together better and take away drudge work. That's an extraordinary opportunity. And I think what's interesting about COVID is it's accelerated some trends and I hope we don't go down a cheap automation route, which is a worry, but it's ruptured our habits. It's ruptured our way of thinking. And so I hope this is then the beginnings of this change of narrative. And your example, talking about essential workers rather than skilled workers, I think is such an interesting shift because we're moving away from a market logic towards something broader. For my mind, GDP is a good indicator of performance when society is stable. But when you're going through the sort of transition that COVID has done and we're about to see with technology and longevity, we need to think more broadly. So, Linda, I'm really interested in how we see this change materially occur. So 
We at the RSA argue that there are really three conditions that indicate whether or not it is likely that a crisis does lead to long-term intentional change. The first is that there was demand for change and capacity for change before the crisis. Now, we can clearly see that in relation to issues around age and demands for different ways of thinking about our lives. Then secondly, during the crisis, the demand grows, but also you see the future being prefigured. You see certain glimpses in our response to the crisis of the future. And then thirdly and finally, if you're going to get change out of crisis, you need the political coalitions and the practical policy suggestions and social innovations ready so that when you emerge from crisis, people are open to things being different, people are open to adjustment, even to a certain level of sacrifice. You can take advantage of that to embed different ways of doing things. So if we all agree that in some senses this crisis has shook up the kaleidoscope, as it were, it's challenged even further the notion that learning all happens in the first third of your life and then work for the next third and then retirement for the final third and that family and community and volunteering are all kind of rather marginal things in comparison to the core business of the economy. If all that's been thrown in the air, how concretely in policy terms, in innovation terms, could that lead to change? Linda? Well, I think, you know, Matthew, your notion of why things happen after the pandemic are absolutely spot on. I mean, there's no question that right now there is demand. We've been running webinars right from the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, I ran one this morning with the New South Wales government and polling people. And during those polls, it's really fascinating how the narrative has changed about what people believe to be important. And we're now moving to a point, I think, where fatigue is setting in. I think people are, as you said in your second point, they're beginning to see the future prefigured. So what might that future be? Well, I'd make two comments about that. Firstly, I think one thing that's been really thrown up in the air is our sense of identity. You know, who we are, who we care about what lives we can live, how we think about our family, how we think about our community. And those questions of identity are questions that we are exploring individually, exploring with our family and actually exploring with our colleagues. And I think new senses of identity will come from that. For example, men are spending more time with their children, although they're not doing as much domestic labor, they're spending more time with their kids. Will their identity change as a process of that? Will they decide when they get back to work, they want to work more flexibly in doing so? Will therefore the pay gap between mums and dads that we know definitely happens now? Will government step in? Will we change that? Will men take more paternity leave? And at the same time, we have enormous social ingenuity taking place. And I think we are beginning to see the future and we're seeing it in extraordinary experiments that are happening all over the world right now. One of the things that I've been saying to leaders over the last few weeks is to take a look at those experiments, take a look at how people are coping with the world that they're now living in and see how you can concretely change that. And there's no doubt that the old habits that we've had will change. In an earlier webinar, I asked do you think productivity has gone up in your company? Almost half believed that it had. And when we went into details about why that was the case, it was partly because people were working longer hours, but more because they were doing less bureaucratic activities. Now, when you've put a flame to the bureaucracy in your organization, are you going to let it grow again? I suspect not. So I think that we've learned a great deal about what we don't like doing. We don't like bureaucracy. We do want to work faster. But we've also learned a lot about 
what we like doing. You know, we like spending more time with our families. We want to be part of the communities. And I think organizations are going to be listening to the voices of their employees to decide how they refigure. And of course, government is doing the same. Can I also just pick up on some of the policy sides? Because Linda's absolutely focused on the corporate stuff and how we're seeing this raft of experimentation. I mean, clearly the economic environment is going to be tough for governments. There's going to be a lot of unemployment and a lot of pressure on public finances. But I think the agenda or the initiative behind inclusive growth-orientated policies is going to increase. I think for me, there's sort of two things we're going to have to focus on. One is around health and one is around employment. I think this crisis has accelerated a shift towards preventative health. You know, the whole aim of what we're doing with lockdown is to try and stop people getting into hospital because we know that when you've got lots of old people, treating them when they're ill in hospital is not a good way of doing it. And whether it's at the individual level with sort of monitoring health and uh, all the various apps or just the shift to GPs going online, etc., I think we've seen the beginnings of a big shift towards the system becoming more around preventative health. Employment is clearly going to be crucial. We're going to have a very, very high level of unemployment, and that will take a while to get rid of. And there, I think there's two key things governments have to do. You're seeing more and more focus on creating the skills to match the jobs of the future. And, you know, Linda and I, we both work in business school. We're certainly going to endorse that wholeheartedly. But that's going to be around adult education and how we do that at scale. And that's something we haven't done before, but it's going to be crucial. But the other thing, which in a way I think COVID might accelerate, is we're going to have to create the jobs to match the existing skills of people. We can't expect everyone to be turned into updated and upskilled people. And I think actually, if you look at the type of jobs that may be growing quite fast in the wake of COVID, it will hopefully be a re-emergence of the local service sector. It's going to be more about delivery and local work. And I think that's going to have to be encouraged to try and reduce the level of unemployment. So a focus on employment supporting people to learn the new skills throughout our education, but also schemes at a very small-scale entrepreneurship level to create jobs to match skills. And then the other thing that worries me around employment, we will rightly see a big focus on younger workers who have been most disadvantaged by this crisis. But actually, I think the impact on pensions and people's finances will be much greater than any impact on life expectancy from COVID. So the need to work for longer has increased. But we see a lot of people in their 50s of all income levels and education levels unemployed and struggling to get work. And that's going to be a real challenge. So this has been absolutely fascinating. And Linda, I'm going to ask you a last question, because one thing we haven't discussed at all is inequality. And inequality is very important to this conversation. I actually worked for Tony Blair when we were considering Adair Turner's pension reforms, and part of that was raising the pension age. And one of the arguments that was raised against raising the pension entitlement age came from Labour MPs in working class areas who pointed out that working class people died younger, and that therefore, whilst Adair was very reasonably arguing that you know, we live longer and therefore we need to probably work a bit longer and wait for our pension a bit longer. They said, well, that's fine if you're middle class and you've got a life expectancy of 83. It's very different. If, you know, you've had a tough life working in a manual occupation, your life expectancy is more like 70. We can see enormous inequalities in relation to assets amongst older people. Probably the single, you know, most profound economic inequality is between pensioners who have no assets to fall back on and middle class people who've got enormous assets. And of course, people like David Willits have talked about the way in which the baby boomer generation, our generation, has kind of eaten up those assets and life is much harder for the younger generation. So Linda, if we are going to go through the kinds of adjustments that you're talking about, don't we at the same time have to recognise that this is going to involve addressing quite deep social inequality? 
you know, Matthew and, and the RSA have done a wonderful job over many years to talk about inequality. One of the things that we've talked about both in The 100-Year Life and indeed in our new book, The New Long Life, is that all of the shifts that we see naturally lead to greater inequality. In terms of family structures, middle-class families have structures that are more able to support their kids in terms of stability. In terms of life expectancy, as you've said, more educated, richer people live longer. And indeed, in terms of automation, the less educated are more likely to see their jobs automated. So left untapped, these forces of inequality will only grow. And so it's absolutely crucial, and Andrew and I make this point very clearly in the book, that we address inequality, both as individuals in terms of the way we think about our own communities and the way we support our communities, in terms of our educational institutions, to think about how they provide lifelong learning for as many people as possible, and indeed for governments, where they need to focus not on preserving jobs, but rather on helping individuals upskill and reskill to take advantage of these new technologies that are being developed. Andrew, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting observation about the pension age. And of course, that goes to the heart of this problem that chronological age is just really not a very good indicator of someone's health, because we've to a degree made age malleable and that inequality proves it. So I think for me that creates massive challenges about any policy that is based around chronological age. So you have to set up a retirement and a pension system that provides an incentive for those people who can work for longer to do so while still not removing retirement, which has been a fantastic invention for those who will have a shorter life expectancy. Um, I think one of the things to me that's really interesting, we heard a lot about bending the curve with corona. And I said earlier that what we've shown is a willingness to create a GDP in order to save lives. I think we need to show those values in bending another curve, which is, as you pointed out, the bottom 10% of the income distribution age much worse than the top 10%. And that's a curve that we have to shift. And given the revealed preference for society to put healthy lives above GDP, that seems to me to be an urgent policy agenda, one that requires substantial revenue and deep-seated changes. Well, that's a great way to end our conversation. Now, we've talked about the relationship between working lives and the rest of our lives. So I'm going to ask you both a final question, which is that many people over the last couple of months, because they've been at home, have found themselves developing new enthusiasms or skills or hobbies or whatever. So, Andrew, have you been baking bread? Have you been out in the garden? Have you been doing anything new in your life in the last couple of months? I did read somewhere online that if you don't use this opportunity to sort of learn the violin, uh, speak Japanese, and the problem is you and not your diary. And I haven't learned Japanese or learned the violin. Uh, for me, I think we talked about how COVID accelerates us into the future. There's something old school about this crisis too. And for me, the real joy has been trying to do less or to focus on the things that matter most. So just finding some quiet time to sort of base myself, to think and read has for me been one of the luxuries of this crisis, despite all the terrible things that are happening. And that's been important for keeping me sane during this time. And Linda? We've had a huge focus in our family on healthy healthy eating, healthy exercise. So I've been really pushing my creative boundaries in terms of cooking vegetarian curries. Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott, thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. 
The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.